All right, thank you, praise team. Church, those are four of my favorite songs. What, what uh, incredible truth we just reminded ourselves of on a Lord's Supper Sunday, but the truth is the words and the themes of those songs are relevant for every day of the Christian life. Because we need the grace of God and we need to know that forgiveness is full and complete through the blood of Christ. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel and chapter 12. 2 Samuel and chapter 12. British native John Newton, author of the probably most beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, was born in 1725 and died in 1807. As a non-believer from an early age, John Newton was involved with the slave trade. In fact, he was a captain of ships, uh, of different slave ships. But after a near-death experience while out at sea, this led him to explore the Christian faith. Ultimately, Newton became a follower of Jesus Christ and eventually renounced his association with slavery. He became an Anglican priest and one of the most influential abolitionists of all time. The first verse of Amazing Grace, which you know very well, is a reflection or a description of Newton's life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. See, Newton grasped the, magnif- the magnificent, magnificent grace of God. He understood the magnitude of his own sin, but the glorious forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. Listen to his confession. I am not what I ought to be, what I want to be, nor what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by God's grace, I am what I am. Later in life, he said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. See, Newton had a great understanding of this life, of our desperate need for forgiveness that is found only through the grace of God. Now, as we look to 2 Samuel chapter 12 this morning and we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, my hope is that we walk away with a greater love for God and a greater appreciation of and dependence on his grace. Will you stand with me as we read the first 15 verses of 2 Samuel in chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. 
and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to David, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if this were too little, I would add it to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have uttered scorn to the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look to your text today, to the word, we're praying that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that we would get a greater understanding and grasp of the love and the grace that is found in and through Jesus Christ. And that because of the grace that we've experienced, that you would transform our lives, that we would be motivated to live for your glory, knowing that in Christ we are secure, knowing that in Christ we have hope. And today, Lord, there are people in this room who have yet to to confess their sin and put their trust in Jesus. So we're praying today that you would do a work of salvation. We're praying today that you would open up the eyes of the blind, that those who are lost would be found today, that you would receive glory as you call men and women and boys and girls to relationship with you. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the opportunity that we have today to be in your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, as we look to chapter 11, we read of David's great sin. And as chapter 11 closes, we remember that editorial comment given to us that what David did displeased the Lord. Now, the thing that David did was actually the things that David did, right? It was his adultery, it was his murder, it was his cover-up, it was his pride. Actually, we're going to see this morning that it was even worse because it showed disdain for the Lord, that he was scorning the Lord. And as we move into Acts, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 12, we'll see that God's grace reveals our sin. God's Grace reveals our sin. We don't know how much time has passed since the events of 
chapter 11, maybe a year or so. We know that the baby that uh, was conceived uh, was alive and that had a, a sentence of death on him. We do know very clearly because the text tells us that God sent his prophet Nathan to go and to confront David concerning his sin. Now consider that, friends, because God did not have to send Nathan to David. He did not have to. He could have left David to himself. He could have written David off because of his sin in the same way that God chose to reject Saul's kingship. God could have chosen to reject David's kingship and just let him sail into the sunset apart from relationship with him. But instead of letting David remain lost and broken in his sinful condition, God graciously sends a messenger to David. He sends a messenger with the very specific purpose of awakening him from his spiritual slumber and arousing him to deal with his sin. Now, there's a few things that we need to point out here. First, God sends his messenger to speak his word. God sends the prophet Nathan to speak God's word to David. And friends, it is always God's gracious word that clues us into our sin. It's always God's gracious word that clues us into our need for a savior. God's word, all according to his grace, is revealing our sin. It was this way from the very beginning, right? God spoke to Adam and Eve and he gave Adam and Eve uh, much freedom but he gave them a prohibition, right? But when they disobeyed God and they ate from the, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they hid. They tried to run, they tried to hide from God, but God went and God found them. God didn't have to. God didn't have to. No, it was his grace that moved him to go and find Adam and Eve. He could have left them there. He could have let them die in their sin, eternally separated from him because of their sinful rebellion. And while there were consequences for their disbelief and their disobedience, God restored them and he provided a covering for their nakedness. And God has made his will and his ways known to us in his word. Friends, one of the main functions of his word in the law is to reveal to us where we have gone astray, right? The law then is a mirror to us that shows us our sin, that shows us, that reveals to us our sin, and this is grace. Friends, it is God's grace that we would know him. It is God's grace that we would know his will. It is God's grace that we would know the remedy for our sin. And God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't have to send his word. He doesn't have to pursue us. He could smite us all because of our rejection of him. For our failure to honor him as the holy creator God and our failure to live for his glory alone. Instead, he graciously moves towards us. 
making himself known to us by his grace through his word and allowing us to see ourselves for who we really are. We who are lacking in righteousness and who are desperate for forgiveness, who are desperate for his mercy. Now, the second thing to point out is this. If God did not meet us with his grace, we would have no hope. If God did not meet us with his grace in his word, we would have no hope. English poet Francis Thompson wrote the poem, The Hound of Heaven, first printed in 1890. The poem concerns God's gracious love and how it, how he, pursues lost souls. Now, the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of our own lives bears to this reality, right? Friends, it's always God's grace that pursues us, we who are sinners. We had no inkling to seek after the one true God, the only God who can save. That's why in 1 John chapter 4, 19, John writes, we love because he first loved us us in verse 10 and this is love not that we have loved God but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins God graciously initiates relationship and we gratefully respond to him praise God for his gracious initiative in our lives praise God for the Holy Spirit giving us life for awakening us from our spiritual death and through his word, through the word of Christ, giving us life, giving us hope. See, God sent Nathan to speak his word to David. God is pursuing David and that's his grace. That's his Grace. So Nathan then begins by telling David of a situation. It's a parable of sorts. However, in the text, there's no indication that David believes this is a made-up story. In fact, David's emotions, as we move through the story, tell us that David thought this was a real situation. In fact, this was one of the roles of a king, right? To judge such situations. When Israel was clamoring for a king, 1 Samuel chapter 8, one of the justifications was, we want a king who will judge us just like all the other nations. Now, author Peter Leithart suggests that the story of Nathan, the story that Nathan told, was one of exploitation and oppression, not merely about the theft of a lamb. And if we think about it, it's very clear the story closely parallels the actions of David against Bathsheba and Uriah. Consider the rich man who had everything took the lamb from the poor man who had nothing as David took Bathsheba. Consider that the poor man who loved this lamb, who held this lamb in his arms, is actually a picture of what happened between Uriah and David. How Uriah loved his wife, but David took the lamb and held it in his arms. That is, took Bathsheba and held her in his arms. The lamb was like a daughter to the poor man, according to Nathan. Interestingly, the first, interestingly, the first syllable of the Hebrew word for daughter is bat, Bathsheba. There's a lot of parallel here. 
There is a vast difference between the rich man and the poor man, just as there is a vast difference between David, who had everything, and Uriah, who comparably had very little. But we get to the end of the story here, and David's emotions are high. He's angry. He's angry because of what he's heard. The thought that this rich man would take from the poor man when the rich man had everything, this is everything it took for David's blood to boil. But little did David understand that when he pronounced his judgment on this man, that he should die and there should be fourfold uh, payment made, that he was incriminating himself, that he was sentencing himself. David, like everyone in this room, had a sense of justice. Created in God's image, we know right and wrong. We have a sense of that. However, David, like every one of us, has this tendency to give ourselves a pass. David wouldn't see his own sin, but now he's confronted with it. Because that's when Nathan pulls out the proverbial rug from... David's feet. You are the man. You are the man. While the expression you to man may have some kind of complimentary features in our day today, that's nothing like what Nathan meant. He was rebuking David for his sin. David, the rich man who is taking from the poor man. And immediately, Nathan continues by reminding David that the grace that God has shown to him, verses 7 and 8, and then he asks him this pointy question, why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? Dale Ralph Davis commentator suggests that our sin looks all the more hideous when viewed against the fidelity it has despise you think about that I mean in your own lives you have a friend you have a co-worker you have someone that you're close to and you've loved and you cared for and they do something to betray you they do something to sin against you how hideous is that sin when you have shown so much love and so much loyalty and so much care and concern for that person and multiply that by a thousand and we have a picture of what's going on here God had been so gracious to David But David rejects all of that to pursue his own satisfaction in a sinful way. Taking Bathsheba and ultimately murdering Uriah. Well, after reminding David of God's grace in his life, Nathan specifies David's sins and the consequences that he'll face for his rebellion, right? The child's going to die. The sword will not depart from your house. And that means a lot of things, and a lot of those things we're going to see over the course of the next several weeks. Let me just say two things about these consequences. They are severe, they're severe, and they're fitting. God doesn't make mistakes. They're severe, and they're fitting. So what we see from the opening verses here is that God's word reveals our sin And that is an act of God's grace in our lives. But we also see that God's grace enables our repentance. 
God's grace enables our repentance. In verse 13, David comes to grips with the weight of his sin and he confesses and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I mean, he doesn't hold back. He's not rationalizing things. He's not trying to make excuses. He's not trying to justify himself. He just says, I have sinned against the Lord. The truth of Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 is playing out in David's life. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division between soul and spirit of the joints of men, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And in the face of God's holiness... And in the face of God's holy assessment on David's life, David is undone. He's undone. What grace God has shown David in this. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, what grace? I mean, God just pointed his finger at David and said, look at what you've done. And yes, that is an aspect of God's grace. Think about it. It wasn't like David was in a happy-go-lucky state of mind during this whole ordeal anyway. Psalm 32 gives us a very clear picture of David's inner turmoil during this time. Listen to Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. So in confronting David, God is offering David freedom from his sin. Think about that. In confronting David, God is offering David a way of escape. This is his grace. This is his love. If he will just confess his sin, and that's what David does. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, the mark of genuine repentance is confession of sin and turning from that sin and turning towards righteousness. What stands out in Psalm 51, which we read responsibly earlier, is David's understanding of how ugly his sin was. And that the only hope for him was the mercy of God. That God would cleanse him. That God would care for him. That God would forgive him. He had no hope unless God would attend to his very soul. To his every need. That God would wash him. That God would purify him. That God would restore the joy of his salvation. All of his hope, and friends, all of your hope and all of my hope is only in the mercy and the grace of God. Always. Always. And what we see in Scripture is that even repentance is a gift from God. It's a grace that is granted by God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, it is God who gives repentance even to Jews. 
In Acts chapter 11, verse 38, it is God who grants repentance to the Gentiles. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, it is God who would grant repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, God's grace enables our repentance. It's not something that we work up because we're so good and because we try so hard. It is God's grace in our lives that enables our repentance. Because with our cold, hard hearts, we would never turn from sin. For us, as we consider our spiritual brokenness, are we not more inclined to confess our sin, to repent of our sin, knowing that God assures us of his grace and forgiveness? I mean, God's promise is to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are we not more inclined to confess and to repent because we know that our God will hear? Because we know that our God will respond by forgiving us and and cleansing us. Friends, and that leads us to the next thought. God's grace takes away our guilt. God's grace takes away our guilt. David confesses his sin and the Lord forgives his sin. David experiences the freedom that only God can give. As soon as David confesses, Nathan responds, the Lord is, the Lord has Put away your sin. The idea of the Lord putting away one's sin carries the idea of the Lord passing over your sin. I think of Israel leaving Egypt and the angel passing over the houses that applied the blood to the doorposts. And this, of course, points to the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, who died in our place to take away our sin. And now, even in this passage, there is this veiled picture of substitution. Nathan tells David that the Lord has has taken away his guilt, but the child will die. Now, some take issue with this, arguing that it's unfair that the child should die because of David's sin. And while this may be hard to grasp, the text does indicate or seem to indicate that the child would enter into the presence of God. Others are arguing here that David just gets off too easy. This isn't so, this isn't fair, but we're going to see the chaos that this sin would cause in his life. We're going to see the consequences play out in David's life because of his sin. But beyond that, friends, let's first look to our own lives. Jesus, the Son of God, died in our place to take away our guilt, to take away our sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. And because of that, the author of Hebrews will write in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see this? God's grace takes away our sin and that through the finished work of Jesus Christ. For all who will put their hope in Jesus, all who will trust in the grace of God that is poured out to us in Jesus Christ, God takes away our guilt. God purifies our conscience. God washes us with pure water that we might live for him. However we've lived in the past, and there are people in this room today who are living in, in rebellion against God. If you will confess your sin, if you will put your hope in Jesus, God will forgive you of your sin, but you've got to repent. You've got to confess. You've got to turn from your rebellion. You've got to rest in the finished work of Jesus. That's what he means when he says, with a true heart. Don't minimize this, friends, because God's grace takes away our guilt. As the song says, my sin was deep. Your grace was deeper. My shame was wide. Your arms were wider. My guilt was great. Your love was greater still. Grace greater than our greatest sin. And finally, we see that God's grace restores our hope. God's grace restores our hope. Yes, there are consequences for sin and disobedience, but friends, our failure is not the final say for those who are rightly connected to God through faith. Our failure, our sin, does not have the final say for those who are in Christ. Verses 15 through 23 record Bathsheba's son becoming sick and David's pleading with God for the life of his son. Imagine that, friends. David was under God's judgment, but he has nowhere else to turn but to the mercy of God. And he pleads with God. We're told for a week, and on the eighth day the child would die. He pleads with God for mercy. He still chose to draw near to God even though he was under the judgment of God. And while the child would eventually die, David did not lose hope. Why? Because he was certain that one day he would see the child again. The servants of David, they, they, they were afraid to tell David that the child had died because he was already so broken over the course of the past week. And then David sees the servants kind of whispering to themselves and he says, look, is the child dead? And they say, yes. And then David washes himself and he kind of, he kind of cheers up a little bit and they're kind of wondering and he says, look, can I bring him back? No, but I will one day go to him. In other words, there's hope. There is hope that there would be a togetherness again in the presence of God. And then God graciously allows Bathsheba to conceive again and to bear another son, Solomon, who will be the next legitimate king in David's line. God's grace restores our hope even after we fail. God's grace restores hope 
even after we fail. And we need to hear that because everyone in this room has failed. Everyone in this room fails on a regular basis, but God's grace restores hope. The chapter ends, verse 26 through 33, with David again performing his kingly duties, right? He's now out on the battlefield. Uh, He's going to go finish off an enemy of war. Even this, friends, is an aspect of God's grace that he would be put back into this position where he can lead his army, where he can be doing his kingly duties. God could have killed David. He could have taken his kingdom. He could have even had Israel lose that battle. Instead, David and Israel find themselves victorious. God's grace restores our hope. Today, you need to know that if you are in Christ, that sin does not have the final word. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are outside of relationship with God through faith in Christ Jesus, today there is hope for you. There is hope for you if you will confess your sin, if you will turn to Jesus. There is hope for you if you will recognize your need for a Savior because of your rebellion against God and put your hope and your trust in Jesus who is the only Savior. The only one who can rescue us from our sin. As we transition to partaking of the Lord's Supper, I want to read a passage in Romans chapter 8 and then encourage you to spend time quietly confessing your sin to God and to thank him for his amazing grace. Friends, hopefully you picked up elements of the Lord's Supper on your way in, but if you have not, we have men coming in right now with elements. If you'll just raise your hand, they will bring to you elements. They will get those to you right away. Let me read this passage and we'll spend a little bit of time reflecting. Romans chapter eight, verse 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you take moments now to reflect on your life, to confess sin, and to consider the grace of God and the love of Christ. Christ.